The Old Testament lesson for today is from Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. This can be found on page 9 of your Pew Bible. This brief narrative about the Tower of Babel reveals humanity's inclination to rely on our own independence and self-sufficiency in place of the power and presence of God. A reading from Genesis chapter 11, beginning with the first verse. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Are you ever sitting in church and you hear the scripture being read and you think to yourself, now how is the preacher going to preach on that? How is that going to be relevant for our lives? I've been thinking that all week as I've been anticipating (laughs) preaching the Tower of Babel. And so it's worth revisiting what we talked about last week. How are we reading these stories in the book of Genesis. We're going through the entire Bible over three years, a three-year chronological study of the Bible. Last week, we looked at Noah and the ark and the flood. This week, the Tower of Babel. How are we reading these stories? We can be tempted to read them simply as moralisms. Be like Noah, but don't be like the people who built the Tower of Babel. That would be a moralistic reading. But we have found a more relevant reading, a more relevant lens even than moralism. We're sometimes otherwise tempted to read these stories through the lens of apologetics. Apologetics are a series of arguments that prove the existence of the God of the Bible. Apologetics is a great field of study. A lot of people enter into the faith through apologetics, through their intellect. But that's not our chief motivation in reading these stories here at Stanwich Church. What is our chief motivation? What is the vision of Stanwich Church? Who knows it? Who can? Jane? Oh, well, let's do it all at once. It sounds like there's enough people who know it, okay? The vision of Stanwich Church is? Now, how many of the new members knew that? Did you guys know that? <laughs> now you know. To know Christ and make him known. And so we read these Old Testament stories the way that Jesus instructed us to read them. In Luke chapter 24, when he's walking along the road to Emmaus, and he goes through Moses and the prophets, and he shows them all the things concerning himself. So we're looking at the Tower of Babel today, and you might be wondering, how in the world can the Tower of Babel point us to the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
Well, we're going to borrow a little bit of help from the New Testament, from Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at this story from Genesis 11 and pair it with Philippians chapter 2. They are really opposite stories. What Genesis chapter 11 shows us is not just the motivations and the characteristics of the heart of some ancient people way back in the ancient days, but it shows us, it reveals to us some things about our own hearts, what motivates us when we operate apart from God. And what Philippians 2 shows us by precise contrast is what motivates the heart of God in sending Jesus Christ on our behalf. Three revelations that I see in this scripture today. Three revelations that, if we're being honest, are true even of our own hearts. Three things that motivate us when we are living apart from God. So we're going to see revelations about ourselves today in this scripture, but more importantly, revelations about our Savior, what his heart is motivated by. The first revelation of the human heart, what motivates us, is that we think often that we have to save ourselves. We think we have to save ourselves. We'll be looking at verse 4 primarily in our scripture today. Verse 4 says, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Come, they said, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Maybe we can achieve our way out of this mess called earth. This is the story after the flood. The peoples had begun repopulating the earth. And as we know from the story, sin still lives in the hearts of man. It's total depravity. Everywhere you look, there's corruption, there's murder, there's crime. And these people assemble, they unite around this idea of building a tower to the heavens. And we look back at them and we say, wow, they were trying, it seems, to escape this earth, but do we ever do anything like that ourselves? You know, I I was reading some commentaries about this this week and I found it very fascinating. It it tells us in verse 3 the materials that they used to build the tower. They, They baked bricks thoroughly. And the mortar that they used was made out of bitumen. That's not a word we use often, bitumen. It's actually still used today. It's like a tar or an asphalt. And what we learn about it is that it's waterproof. Now, let's think about that for a moment. This is literally the story that takes place after the flood. The flood waters have subsided. There's some biblical scholarship that suggests these folks were trying to build a waterproof tower. They are trying to save themselves from the next flood. Even if they weren't building a waterproof tower, they were trying to ascend. They were trying to achieve their way to the heavens. Do any of us ever do such a thing? Do we try to achieve our way out of this mess? Do we try to climb the ladder? Maybe it's escapism through transcendent experiences. Maybe if, you're, if you grew up like I did in a very religious setting or a legalistic setting, we try to save ourselves through following the rules just, just so, just right. I can be obedient. I'll be a good boy. I'll be righteous. And if I do that, I will climb the ladder towards God's acceptance of me. He'll have to let me into heaven because I've been so good. In one way or another, we are tempted to 
build a staircase, to build a ladder, to build a tower, to reach the heavens. We think, living apart from God, that we have to save ourselves. Now let's compare that human impulse with the impulse of God. Listen to the descent of Jesus as described in Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus enjoyed the position at the right hand of the Father on the throne of the universe. And he stepped down from that place of comfort and safety. And he stepped down to become a man, to become a servant, to become obedient even to the point of death on a cross. That is a great descent. We don't need to achieve our way up to the heavens. We don't need to climb our way up to the heavens because we have a God who came down, who descended in the person and the work of Jesus Christ for us. We don't need to save ourselves by ascending because we are saved by his gracious descent. We can trust God who came down for us. We don't have to save ourselves. We have a savior. That's the first motivation of the human heart that I see in these folks who tried to build the Tower of Babel. We think we have to save ourselves, yet we see in the gospel that we have been saved. The second one is that we focus too much on our own reputations. We focus too much on our own reputations. Listen again in verse 4. They said, Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. See this motivation? How silly of those ancient people. (laughs) You know, it seems our culture is almost built on this, making a name for ourselves. It starts in high school, doesn't it? You got to get that college application ready. Make a name for yourself with the admissions office so they can make a name for you in your reach school. Make a name for yourself. Even if you're not a student, you know, I was looking at my own life and, you know, I was asking myself, what's my Instagram for, really? What's my LinkedIn profile for, really? It's my reputation. I need it to be stellar out there. Make a name for ourselves. Did you know that, that um, pastors are tempted with this motivation as well? Yeah, it's true. I was um, FaceTiming or Zooming with a friend of mine who's a, um, a director of a ministry in the middle of the country, and it's huge. He's got thousands and thousands of people in it, and we connect every once in a while over Zoom just to encourage each other and pray for one another. And I was talking with him about the person who had his position before him, and this was a great legacy minister. Everyone knows this guy's name. And I was talking with the guy who has the position currently, and he said, you know, Nathan, I have a daily temptation to try to make sure everybody remembers my name as much as they remember his name. And that's true in ministry often. 
I want to make sure people remember my name. This happens to a lot of ministers. But how does the gospel answer this? How does Philippians 2 answer this temptation of ours to try to protect and advance our own reputations? Look what it says in Philippians 2, this time in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why can we be so other-focused? Why do we not have to advance and protect our own reputations and our own names? Well, because of what it says in Philippians 2, Verse 8 and following, being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, get this, the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Here's the freedom. We don't have to advance our own names. We don't have to protect our own reputations. We don't have to get our name out there if we acknowledge that there is a name above every name. The name of Jesus then becomes the name we want to advance and promote and make famous in this world. When we realize who he is, we exalt his name. And we're far less interested in protecting our own reputations. It's exhausting trying to achieve our own salvation and trying to protect our own reputations, isn't it? It's freeing, and we find rest in simply acknowledging we have a Savior. His name is Jesus. Let's make him famous. We say this prayer almost every Sunday. The pastors, we get together and pray every Sunday morning. We say this prayer. It takes one form or another. It usually sounds something like this. We say, Lord, we pray in alignment with John the Baptist that we might decrease so that you might increase. There's this scene in the Gospels where John the Baptist has these disciples and they come to him and there's a scandal. There's a problem on their hands and they say, John, you're not going to believe this. Some of your disciples, they're going off and they're following Jesus. What are you going to do about it? And John says, I must decrease so that he may increase. And we pray this. We pray, Lord, if there's somebody who comes to church today and they don't know you, we pray that when they drive away from this property, if they have learned a new name, it's the name of Jesus. Will you reveal yourself to them? Will you use us to simply point to him? And we're freed up now to promote his reputation in this world, not our own. The third motivation that I see revealed in the human heart in this scripture is that we are often motivated by fear of what might happen to us if we don't get our way. We're motivated by fear of what might happen to us if we don't get our way. Look again at verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, let us make a name for ourselves. Why? Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They'd finally found some unity. They'd found some community. They were bonding together on this mission, and they said, we got to stay together 
because we don't want to be isolated again. We don't want to be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, they actually got what they feared. God thwarted their plans. In verse 9, it says God ends up dispersing them over the face of the earth. Why did God do that? God was thwarting their plans because he loved them enough to protect them. They were trying to build this tower that they could save themselves and promote their own reputation, and God scrambled their language in a way of loving them, actually, because if they had achieved what they set out to do, it would have been disastrous for them. You know how you toddler-proof a home? When the toddler is unaware that they're about to be in danger, you put protections in place. God was scattering the people out of his love for them. But they were motivated chiefly, primarily, by fear of what might happen to them if they didn't achieve this tower. And often we are motivated by fear of what might happen to us, aren't we? So what's the alternative to being motivated by fear of what might happen to us? What does the gospel say in Philippians 2? It's described in verse 1 and 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. Love is what motivated Jesus to come down from his seat in the heavenlies, to humble himself, to become obedient even unto death, When we were trying to save ourselves, Jesus gave up his own safety. And he was flogged and beaten and killed. Why did he do that? Because he loved us. If we have fear that we might not get what we want, it might be because we don't know how loved we are. Just consider this for a moment. If Jesus did that for us, if the God of the universe, the one seated at the right hand of the Father, left his throne to die a torturous, brutal death so that we wouldn't have to pay the penalty of our own sins, do you know how loved you are? You are so loved, it's unimaginable. The great love with which he has loved us. And when we saturate ourselves and we behold the love of God in Jesus Christ, we have nothing to fear. First John 4 verse 18 says, there's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Jesus had much to fear in going to the cross, and he went there for us. He faced the consequences of our sins, the righteous wrath of God, so that we wouldn't have to. He tasted that wrath to its full extent, so we don't have to fear the wrath of God anymore if we are under the cross. Three days later, he rose again from the tomb, conquering our greatest enemy, which is death. He rose again, and we will rise with him on the last day. Our greatest enemy, death, has been conquered by him. What do we have to be afraid of? When we behold the love of God in Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for us, we're no longer motivated by fear that we might not get what we want. We realize we don't have to save 
ourselves. We don't have to focus on our own reputations. We can praise and exalt, and as we sang earlier, magnify Christ. And here's the beautiful thing. Here's the beautiful takeaway that we get to enjoy. Not only is the takeaway to exalt Christ and worship him, but there's this beautiful thing happening right here in this room right now as I speak. And it's this beautiful regathering. The people were scattered when they were trying to build their own tower, achieve their own salvation. God scattered them and gave them different languages. But in Christ, in Christ's church, there is this regathering of the people under the right name the name of Jesus, no longer trying to make a name for ourselves. In Acts chapter 2, Pentecost comes. The Holy Spirit lands on the apostles and gives them all tongues, gives them languages to speak so that everybody in Jerusalem can hear the gospel in their own tongue. And there's this beautiful regathering of the peoples. It's the opposite of the Tower of Babel. And here we are at Stanwich Church, regathered under the name, under the cross, under the banner, under the exalting and magnification of the name of Jesus Christ, to know Christ and make him known. It just so happens that we looked at this study on New Member Sunday, where the new members are coming into the fold. More and more people are being regathered by the grace of Jesus Christ. We're being regathered by the Holy Spirit, speaking to all of us. We're all so different, yet we are united here when we magnify Christ, when we seek to know Christ and make him known, when we saturate ourselves, when we behold the great love of God in Jesus Christ, we rest from the exhausting cycle of trying to save ourselves, make a name for ourselves, and be motivated by fear. We rest in his love, and we worship his name. Amen.